This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. I'm glad you've come, those who have. I think we should be starting in about one minute. I haven't heard from anyone who says there must need to be announcements. And uh, it looks like I see quite a number of new faces. That is, people who listened to me this morning decided not to come back, and those who listened to other people this morning decided to go listen to someone else. And uh, that's probably fair, because with Audioverse, you can catch up on what you missed everywhere, right? And that will work out. But I might wait a whole minute to see if more people pour in, just because I know it's a 10-minute walk down here. What? The exhibits are open? So people are running their exhibits. <clears throat> we can't wait forever, so we'll just have to start without them, and then they'll feel guilty, and they'll stay for the second session just because of it, right? And that will work out. Is there anyone that was here this morning that had a question about what was said this morning? Let me tell you, you did. Go ahead. In my head right now, I feel like it's in 2 Corinthians 2 and 3. But just let me just look and see where it is. It's not 2 Corinthians 3. It must be 1 Corinthians. Whenever I give a reference and I give a chapter number instead of verses... You should always know that uh, it's, it's doubtful. It's 1 Corinthians, uh, I did talk about 2 Corinthians 3 when I talked about the law and Moses' administration. I also referred to 1 Corinthians 3 when I talked about carnal arguing in the church. So that can cause real confusion when I talked about both in one meeting. And um, before we pray, I had another question that I just want to clarify because <clears throat> I confused a young man this morning. I mentioned this morning how God could have made the gospel very short, like a page or two, you know, but he gave enough content, enough information with enough things that we could study and enough mysteries that we could study it for a long time. Like we could really be looking into it and keep learning and learning and learning about the gospel, and by doing that, it could be in front of our faces. It could could get a lot of our attention. But the young man who came to me at lunch thought I was saying by that that the gospel wasn't easy to understand. And I hope you noticed the title of my next lecture. Did anyone know what the title of the next lecture is? The title of the next lecture is, The Everlasting Gospel Should Be Easy to Understand. So I just want to clarify, that's not what I was trying to say. I think God made the gospel such that a wayfaring man, though a fool, need not err therein, but that the scholar could study it as long as he is alive and continually find new gems and plenty to keep his attention. You have something for me. Yes. Uh, oh, the book. Somebody, somebody was here in your earlier meeting and was really blessed by it. And they said they would donate this book free to anybody attending this class if they would strike their name in that. Class on there. They would no, it's to more than one person. More than one person. Anybody in this room. So... There has been a nice person who I don't know his name, but it might be him. But I don't, an anonymous person who has agreed to give a copy of this precious book to anyone who will go through the trouble of putting their name and address. Is it because it's going to be mailed to them or just so you'll have it? It'll be mailed to you. And uh, so, so I don't know who wouldn't put their name and address there. I, what... Let me just talk to that man for just a minute. I got a copy, but I gave it away to someone in Europe. That's what I was wondering. I was just wondering. Okay, I was wondering. Okay, okay. okay. Could you do that, Heidi? Okay, all right. Okay. The book is called The Return of the Latter Rain. It, it is a 
the most comprehensive history that I know of on the market about the 1888 Dabacle, the experience. It has, like, I have six hours here to talk about the topic generally. This book would be a good 90 hours on the history of it specifically. So you, just can, you never can compete with a lecture with what can be done in writing. I highly recommend the book. The Return of the Latter Rain. And my wife is going to pass around this thing so that it doesn't have enough lines, I'm sure. But, oh, there's several papers? Okay. All right. Okay. We've waited long enough. It's time to start. Uh, let's kneel for a prayer, and we will begin. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, we come to you thankful that you have provided all that is needed for us. As we're sharing in this hour, would you please, by your Holy Spirit, bring to my mind those things that would be most helpful to the very people who are here or to those that will listen later through media. I ask that you would guide me in my thoughts for your sake. In the name of Jesus, amen. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, I think you can find that readily, even though you haven't, been, you haven't turned there in a long time. Ecclesiastes is right near Proverbs right after it, and we're going to chapter 1, <clears throat> Ecclesiastes chapter 1, looking at verse 9, the thing that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. There is no new thing under the sun. That almost rhymes in Old English. Did you notice that? Verse 10. Is there anything whereof it may be said, see, this is new? It has been already of old time, which was before us. What an interesting idea. This is one of the places in the Bible from which we could gather this this idea that history repeats itself. It's an adage that is used in secular venues also. It's not just recognized by Christians. But Solomon plainly says it, that if you want to know what's coming, look at what's going on now. And if you want to know what's going on now, look at what happened in the past. In other words, there's a real value to the study of history and to paying attention to what's happening in terms of being able to forecast to some extent what's going to come. Isn't that a beautiful idea? Or, or a sad idea, or however you want to look at it. It's, it is an important idea. It, it's, it's beautiful in its usefulness and sad in its implications. Look at chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're looking at verse 15. <clears throat> That which hath been is now, and that which is to be has already been, and God requires that which is past. How I understand this is that God organizes his work on the earth in such a way that there is a great similarity between the great reformatory movements in the history of this planet. That as you look at one reformatory movement, like the 16th century Reformation, or the Advent movement, for example, or the work of the apostles in the first century, if, or the work of Hezekiah, for example, in Bible times, when you look at these great movements, or that of Nehemiah, you can find so much similarity between the various ones. Also, there's great similarity between the various times of persecution. In fact, when you find the the souls under the altar in Revelation 6, when they, when they in figure cry out for justice, are they the first souls to cry out for justice in the Bible? 
Didn't Abel's blood cry out according to God in Genesis? When they cry out for justice, what they're told, but first they're given white robes. And I hope you've thought that through as an Adventist. The fact that they're dead and that they're told that they're resting and that their blood is crying out for justice, and then they're given white robes and told to rest a little longer. That tells you that their names came up for judgment not when they were alive, not when they died, not at Christ's second coming, but at some period after they died and prior to Christ's second coming. In other words, right there in the fifth seal, you have some good, solid Bible evidence for the investigative judgment. Did that make sense to at least one person here? And if it didn't make sense to you, you can ask me after the second lecture today when I'll have plenty of time to go over it. But what they're told there is that they should rest a little longer until their brethren should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. In other words, there's going to be in the future a persecution that's going to involve martyrdom that is going to parallel a persecution in the Middle Ages that involved martyrdom. And uh, that should be relevant to you. Is that interesting to you, that that's coming? So history repeats itself. There's another step to this. Look in your Bibles at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in verse 11. We're talking about how corporate history repeats itself or could repeat itself. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and we're looking at verse 11. <clears throat> this morning when Brother uh, Berdahl was sharing about how there's no temptation taken us, but such is a common demand, he was quoting verse 13, but he said verse 11. And that's the verse we're going to look at now, because maybe God just wants you to read it ahead of time to get ready for this lecture. <clears throat> verse 11 says, Now all these things happened unto them for, what's the word? In the King James, it says, and samples, but you have a marginal reading that says types, which doesn't even help, right? We don't know the word types anymore, and we know the word and samples. But in other words, all these things happened, we'll just read the whole verse, unto them for ensamples, upon whom the ends, and they are written for our, our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. God, in choosing which history to record in the Old Testament, he didn't just record all the history uh, with some random filter. There was a very specific filter. He recorded that history that would be relevant to us as a symbol or a metaphor of what would happen in our day. Let me say that to you one more time. I'm trying to just say what's in the verse. So if you don't understand me, just look at the verse. What the verse says is that if you live in the end of time, and that would be us, that all the history you read about in the Old Testament, it was written for us. It was written to be a symbol or a metaphor or an illustration of our time. Isn't that interesting? And uh, we have a man in our church history who made a science out of this. His name was Taylor Bunch. Uh, he, he wrote an entire book called The Exodus in Type and Antitype. He should have used a different name for fourth grade reading level, but it means the story of the Exodus in what happened and in what it represents. That was the idea. A type would be like the lamb, an antitype would be like Jesus. And when in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, it says all that history in the Old Testament was types, that is, it's all in a way like the lamb. That, that's going to confuse someone. I mean, it's all a symbol of our day. I've said that so many times. I'm not going to say it again, right? This is where we are right now. <clears throat> so, does 1888 have a parallel in Old Testament history? It has a very plain one. That parallel takes up a large part of the first five books of the Bible, but the the key aspects of it happen in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. Numbers 13 is where you have the 12 spies. 
And the 12 spies were men who, it seems to me at least, partially misunderstood their assignment. Uh, I don't see any evidence that the purpose of the 12 spies, that they were sent in to see whether or not it was possible to conquer the land. It looked to me like they were sent on a tactical mission to see how to do it, not if to do it. Do you understand the difference between those two ideas? There's a difference between can we and how will we. To say how will we, that's faith. To say how will we, that's, that harmonizes with faith because faith is, not, faith is not like putting your hands behind your back and expecting God to do something. If God is going to give you Canaan, do you think you might still have to figure out how to get it? If he's going to give you a harvest, do you think you might, still might have to do something about learning agriculture? Yes. Uh, I, I'm trying to illustrate something. If God is going to give you favor with the prince of the eunuchs in Daniel 1, he might first give you courtesy and wisdom and tact and skill. That this is the way God gives gifts. And so these 12 men that were sent on a mission to figure out how to conquer the land, instead, many of them decided that they needed to give a warning that it just wasn't possible. I think those men today have a parallel in many I don't even want to say ministers because it's more prevalent than ministers. It'd be ministers, Sabbath school teachers, respected elders, and discouraged adults. <clears throat> People who, instead of going to the Bible to find out how to have victory over sin, they go to the Bible and conclude that we can't have victory over sin. It's, that's not what we were sent here for. We weren't sent to look through the book to figure out whether it's possible. We were sent to find the promises so that we could be a partaker of the divine nature. And when the, in Numbers 13, those men came back with a report, thankfully it wasn't all 12 that came back with that report. Hebrews 3 talks about that. It says he wasn't greed with all of them. That's what Hebrews 13 says. But it says it was with those who believed not. So you remember Joshua and Caleb. I would almost bet... Well, a lot of you are studious, so I would lose this one maybe. But I would almost bet that none of you can remember a single name of the other ten spies. Is there anyone here who can remember a name of one of the other ten spies? They're, oh, they are mentioned in Numbers 13. They're, they're all there, every one of them, their tribe and everything. But uh, we just, uh, we just it, they live in infamy. So in Numbers 14, the two men who, who gave a courageous report, they didn't give it in an, impassioned, an unimpassioned way. Oh, that was two negatives. Let me say it properly. They gave the report in a passionate way. They passionately said, we can go. We can do it. We are well able, was their word. We can and the passion with which they said, we can do it, instead of that passion <clears throat> winning the day with everyone, it irritated their ten comrades. Number, this is in Numbers 14 where they give this passionate plea. And it says there in Numbers 14 that there was a movement to stone them to stone Joshua and Caleb. And in fact, Joshua and Caleb would have been stoned in Numbers 14 had not God interposed by especially appearing at the door of the tabernacle, which he did. And it even looks like that Israel would have been destroyed there if Moses had not specially interposed by intercessory prayer. But that's, that's just a different topic. Related entirely, though. So what happened there when the two spies gave the good report and the ten spies gave the faulty report or the unbelieving report, when they gave that unbelieving report, <clears throat> they were soon confronted with consequences. The consequence was that they would have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. It would not be a comfortable time. It would be a dangerous, deadly time, such that 
after merely 40 years, every adult would be dead except for Joshua and Caleb. There was one other adult living at the end of the 40 years, but that's a tricky thing. Does anyone know who it was? That's right, he had been resurrected. That's exactly it. By that point, he had been resurrected. But uh, Joshua and Caleb, it was when they were the only ones still standing, that, that was at the end of the 40 years. I really think that was by miraculous judgments. Like if we said 40 years from now something's going to happen, not everyone in this room would be dead in 40 years. Does that make sense to you what I'm saying? That God really saw to it that there was a judgment in that 40 years. Then, when they went into Canaan, uh, they were reminded all along the way about that disaster. And thankfully, that time when they had an invitation, they went. So where are we in the parallel to that? 1888 was the time of our two courageous testimonies. It was the time when men shared what God is able to do when they gave a very thorough report on the promises and the provisions in the gospel. A very thorough explanation of how God can change a heart, of the power of the love of God, of the exalted nature of the righteousness of God, of the, of the beautiful thing in Daniel 9. Have you noticed it there? what Jesus did when he brought in what kind of righteousness? It says everlasting righteousness. It's the kind you learn about in the sure mercies of David. And what it means is that if I sin today, though I've soiled my white garment, yet I haven't soiled his. And when I confess and repent, and when I turn from my sin. What did we read about in Isaiah 55? Let the wicked forsake his way and God will abundantly pardon. The righteousness that covered me before covers me again. You can't spoil it. I mean, you can put it off. You can turn away from it. You can go away from it. But it's an everlasting righteousness and it's always going to be pure. When Jones and Wagner gave a thorough report, <clears throat> it just wasn't received. And if I read correctly what Ellen White says about this experience, if it would have been in the time of Moses, there would have been a movement to stone them. There was animosity against them. What I don't think that the administrators in 1888 recognized, I mean, the ones who were on the wrong side, I don't think in any sense they recognized what spirit was suggesting thoughts to them and suggesting feelings to them and was putting thoughts into them. Do you know when they were saying, crucify him, crucify him, when they were saying that to Jesus, it, that the people, it wasn't like this originated with the people. The people didn't like the purity of Jesus, but they didn't hate him like that. What was being manifested was the hatred of demons. It was being manifested because when we lower our guard, when we don't submit to the Spirit, we make room for another Spirit, and that Spirit can largely take over us. History, even in the last hundred years, has several times provided opportunity to prove this. That when you read about the, the genocide in Rwanda, for example, it, you don't find that the evil, murderous men, many of them, you, don't find, you find that many of them had reputations as good, solid family men just a year or two prior to the experience. That they were uh, good, uh, respected citizens. This is, in a situation, the kind of people who you, would, you wouldn't expect them to steal from you. 
those kind of people. And I think if you were in Germany in 1930, that you would, as you went around to the shops and got things to eat and did business with people, that there'd be nothing in you that would perceive in, in 1930 that these Germans were capable of what happened in World War II. But did it happen? I mean, I, I'm not asking you to really t explain it to me. I'm just trying to make you think that when we, when we say what's coming, I think for some people, because I've met some, to imagine the kind of hatred against lovers of truth, the kind of animosity, to imagine the persecution, it just doesn't seem tenable. I mean, it, does, it just doesn't seem like it really could be. It, it doesn't seem like our culture produces, like doesn't it seem secular people are live and let live? Uh, what I'm just trying to say to you is history shows us a different picture. That the same people who would try to stone Joshua and Caleb there in Numbers 14, they just aren't a lot different than you and I and our neighbors today. So... A lot of you have come in since the beginning, like 45% of you have. <clears throat> and uh, at the very beginning, we looked at Ecclesiastes 1 and Ecclesiastes 3 and 1 Corinthians 10. We established plainly that history repeats itself, that Old Testament history especially repeats itself in the end of time, that we ought to be aware and I think when I say that and I illustrate it, I think I also need to go a step further because there's a lot of fanaticism in the world today. And is fanaticism going to increase or decrease as we go forward? Certainly going to increase. Fanaticism will increase, and you want to know how it is that history will repeat itself. History repeats itself in broad strokes. So there were Joshua and Caleb, and there were Jones and Wagner, but it could have been just Caleb and Jones and Wagner, or it could have been Joshua and Caleb and just Jones. The fact that it was two, history doesn't have to repeat itself like that. Does that make sense to you what I'm saying? History repeats itself in broad strokes. There are parallels between the great reformatory movements and what's going to come in the future. It's not like it has to be a duo. You know, God could send a movement. God could send a number of people. God could send one man. God could just bypass that whole normal system and do something else because he does reserve the right to take things into his own hands. That's very plainly stated in inspiration, that, that God reserves the right to do that. But corporate history could be sadly repeated if the administrators of our church I want to say this in a way that is like first person. If the leaders, and I'm a lay leader, but I just think of myself as one of us. If, if we, when God brings his spirit on us again with an opportunity, if we are not humble, if we're not searching, if we're not thirsty and willing, we could blow it again. It really isn't true that there is a mighty clock and when the clock hits midnight, it's all over regardless. It's not true that it has to be over in 2030. It's not true that it has to be over by the time the last person dies that was alive in 1909. I hope you don't even know what I'm talking about when I say these silly things. But, but in the Bible, the end of the world is timed not on a clock. It's timed on the ripening of the harvest. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 14. <clears throat> I just want you to see this. Revelation chapter 14. These things relate to our courage and our salvation. It happens... Um, it happened during the time when the oldest people here were young that a lot of Adventists were concerned that when the probation closed 
that maybe they would only be half done with the business of sanctification and they would be lost. Uh, a lot of people were scared. I've talked to some of them and read by a lot more of them their testimonies. A fear kind of like this, that I submit to God every day, I'm moving forward by the Spirit, I'm accepting the truth, but what if probation closes before the work is done? I'll be lost if that happens. I just want you to know that that idea did not come from anything written by a prophet, not by a modern one and not by one in the Bible. The Bible is pretty clear about the timing of the harvest. Are you in Revelation 14? Revelation 14, look at verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice. Can you believe some people don't believe there's a temple in heaven? I mean, Revelation is so full of references to the temple in heaven. Crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle. Now, do you know anyone in the Bible who sits on clouds? Jesus was taken up in a cloud, and the two beings that were left below said the same Jesus that you saw go up into heaven will come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven, right? So here you have one in a cloud, and the voice says to the one in the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the clock has struck midnight. Why is it time to reap? The harvest of the earth is ripe. The same idea is in Revelation 7. You see the four angels there loosening and re ready to let go of the strife and commotion. And then another comes and says, hold, hold, hold. This is the earlier writings expanded version. Right? We're to hold until the servants of God are sealed in their forehead. It's when the sealing is done in Ezekiel 9 that the slaughtering begins. I'm just trying to say to you the same thing with many different passages. That is the, the husbandman is patient. He's patient for the, for the field. He's willing to wait for the early and the latter rain to do its work. He has lawn patience. 2 Peter 3 says we count that the long suffering of God is salvation. I don't want to grow old. Do you? So the danger is that we could turn away again. I would even say it seems to me, we don't have a prophet that was alive after 1915, but it seems to me that maybe opportunities did come to our church between 1915 and today. That maybe they have come and that they have been turned away and that, and that we're here for, for longer still. What is it that could prevent that kind of experience let me just give you a few ideas that I can see, and then hopefully I'll have time to share more about the timing of the harvest. The one is that we, everyone here, we should be qualifying ourselves to become godly leaders. When you qualify yourself to become a godly leader who loves the truth, loves spiritual things, when you qualify yourself that way, there is a time when God is going to take such qualified people and put them right where he needs them. <clears throat> Do you realize that the revival during the time of David and Solomon was not the result of the faithfulness of David or Solomon? In fact, the, the faithfulness of David and Solomon was not really that great. The reason for the revival is because of the schools of the prophets under Samuel. Samuel created an entire class of young people who loved the truth and were prepared to do their part and we don't even know their names. They diffused throughout the kingdom and they were, a, they were like brakes on a, on a trolley that was going the wrong direction. The, those young people, wherever they were, it was embarrassing to be an idolater. 
where those young people were, the voice of infidelity had to be quieted. It was by being th throughout the people that it changed the nation. Things were really going badly before Samuel instituted those schools. Do you know that schools like that exist again? And they're again putting out a crop of people and we don't even know the children's names. But they're doing the same thing. Wherever they are, they're changing things. Wherever they're going, it's making a difference. That already the ground is being prepared. So one thing you can do is prepare yourself to be put where God wants you. As an, inter, as, as an individual, that's one thing you can do. There's another thing you can do. Let's look at it. It should be the most well-read chapter in the New Testament by Adventist. That's an exaggeration. But 1 Timothy 2. Addresses the issue of ordination, but we're not talking about that. <clears throat> 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're looking at verse 1. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior." Now, that's not talking about praying for church leaders. It's talking about praying for secular leaders. But Paul often, as a church leader, often invited people to pray for him. And if it was right to pray for secular leaders, do you think it's right to pray for church leaders? Like, I have thought this through. Like, in 1888, what if there had been thousands of people praying for the general conference in Minneapolis? Would God, in answer to their prayers, have driven away the evil spirits? Would it have made room for God to accomplish what he wanted to do? Certainly, intercessory prayer is a part of what we can do individually to prevent a, a repeat of what happened before. But there's something else. In our local churches, we must need choose elders qualified according to 1 Timothy 3. I'm not even talking about women's ordination. 1 Timothy 3 has a pretty high standard for elders. A pretty high one. And we need to be putting people in those positions and encouraging people like that to consider broader responsibilities when they're qualified for it. So maybe not everything I should say right now is just about how to prevent the repetition. Not everything is in our hand, right? But uh, we, if we're open to what God wants to do, He can work through simple means and in irregular lines. Do you know what I mean by that phrase, irregular lines? I don't know if you know our history as a church properly to know but God established self-supporting ministries through the work of Ellen White for a purpose. And the purpose, one of God's purposes there was just to prevent the kind of stranglehold that men could get in 1888 on the work that might not be led by the Spirit of God. None of this even remotely as close to what I intended to talk about during this period. Not, not even is it related, in fact. Turn to Matthew chapter 24. <clears throat> Matthew 24, looking at verse 12 and on. It says, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of money, excuse me, the love of many. Yeah, that, that's the root of all evil, isn't it? 
The, the love of many shall wax cold, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Do you see there what it is that brings the end of time? It's the finishing of the work. Yeah, it's, it's, it's finishing the work. It's when the, when the love of those people whose love stays warm takes the gospel to the whole world, that's when things end. But is there a connection between 1888 and the gospel going to the whole world? There is a very material organic connection between the two because a loving and lovable Christian that is filled with the Spirit of God is a power, a loving and lovable Christian family that is filled with the Spirit of God is a power that can do in harmony with God's Spirit a work that it's hard to imagine can be done. What I'm trying to say is that when God finishes the work in us, it won't take long for him to finish the work with us. I don't know if that made sense. When God finishes the work in us, it won't take long for him to use us to finish the work on the planet. Now, some people misunderstanding that truth have decided to wait to do evangelism until they get their life straightened out. And the problem with this is that God gave us the work to straighten out our life. It was by sharing. Like, suppose that you become passionate about the 1888 message of Christ and his righteousness. Uh, you will not serve your own interest in that message well if you make it your life work to only talk to Adventists about it that really, to be healthy, you need to be talking to some people who don't think just like you. And the Bible becomes a much more interesting and fascinating book when you're using it to help someone who is in the pit of despair. Like, that's different than helping someone who's lukewarm inside the church. There are cold people outside who are a lot more ready for what you have to share. Does that make any sense to anyone I'm trying to communicate? Counsels to Parents and Teachers, page 514. There are many that would work if urged into service and who would save their souls by thus working. Let me talk a little bit to you about what happened after 1888, and then this period is going to close, and I'll have to go to the next one. I have five minutes. Uh, Somewhat famously, Jones and Wagner uh, both ended up losing the precious experience that they cherished. Uh, that doesn't say anything about the message. If that said something about the message, then, then it would just be a terrible indictment of Adventism in general. Because very many of the people that were leaders in the Millerite movement also repudiated the truths that they had discovered during that time. But I hope you can learn from them that if God uses you to share about Christ and his righteousness, that will just never, ever, ever be an excuse for fooling with temptation. That when Wagner had his ideas, Wagner's marriage was not the happiest thing. His dad's marriage wasn't either. And the truth is that even if you seem more spiritually inclined than your father, you probably have a lot in common with him when it comes to weaknesses. Any of you recognize that? A lot in common with your dad in terms of weaknesses? When Wagner noticed his secretary was always sweeter and brighter and more spiritual even and interesting 
in what, or interested in what he had to say, that first thought, the message of Christ and his righteousness does not excuse that thought. The message of Christ and his righteousness is not a cover or a cloak of iniquity. And as soon as you use the message of Christ's righteousness as an excuse for your sin, you neutralize the power of the message to do you any good. You know what it means to neutralize? It means remove its effect. So even if Wagner has the most powerful message, call it like hydrochloric acid, he put in it the antacid of an immoral inclination. And it just could not help him anymore. I'm, I, I put a long, like a period of years into one sad sentence. But he did. He ended up marrying his secretary. There is something more. God never intended that we would develop a trust in men. And it is a shame the way that we look up to men. It's not authorized by the Word of God. It's not authorized and it's not healthy for the man or for us. And when we exalt a man in our mind, we put him in a pedestal where the devil will just focus all energies on him. So you can believe that A.T. Jones experienced a lot more irrational resistance to his gospel ideas than you have. Have you ever felt irritated because someone wouldn't believe the simple thing you were trying to explain to them? He experienced a lot of irrational resistance. And that irrational resistance eventually caught a chord with him that Hebrews calls bitterness. Do you know what Hebrews says about bitterness? It says that when you consider Jesus routinely sufficiently, that no root of bitterness will be permitted to spring up. It implies by the statement there in Hebrews 13 that if you're not considering Jesus, that a root of bitterness might spring up. And if it springs up, you will not be lonely in the curse of it. That it will hurt many. Since the time of 1888, a number of men have risen up in our denomination and I'll speak about some of them in this next hour in particular. I'm thinking right now of Wheeland, Short, Sequera, and I don't know if I'll say any others, but those are the three I'm thinking of right now. Some men have, I think Sequera is the only one surviving of those three. I know, I don't, I don't just think that. Uh, those men have risen up and have had strong burdens to speak about Christ and his righteousness and to get that message before a large share of people. We ought to appreciate the efforts they made to get the message before the people. I think if it wasn't for the efforts made by Wheeland in short, far fewer of us here today would be aware of what Jones or Wagner or even Ellen White had had to say about these things. At the very same time I say that, the fact that I appreciate a man doesn't mean I need to believe everything that he says. And it's important... <laughs> is that a hint? Uh, no, no, say. <clears throat> I think I have a minute. It's important to us that we take as a very personal thing the business of covering ourselves with Christ, with his righteousness, in such an experience that though everyone around us chooses to go the wrong way, yet we would still go the right way. 
Because the things that can be shaken, you know what's going to happen? They will be. That's the hard news. You know what the good news is? The things that can't be, they can't be. If you're not afraid of the dark, let's kneel for a prayer. And uh, if you are, you can just stay where you are. Let's see. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, I'm so thankful that you have given a light that shines in a dark place. And I ask regarding that light that John mentioned that is shown in the life of every man on this world, Jesus, that Jesus, the light of the world, would be able to work in us, not just individually, but as a group. Would you please bring back to us the latter rain? Move us to cooperate. And if there's someone here that ought to be the first to repent or confess of a sin, so that you could lead out in a general work of that, would you even cause that to happen? I ask for these gifts in the name of Jesus. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.